you've been with us for the past several weeks, you know that we have been walking through several of the parables of Jesus, and we're going to continue to do that this morning as we gather together on Independence Day weekend. How, how fun is that? We've got Independence Day coming up, the 4th of July on Tuesday. We're going to get to enjoy some barbecue, maybe your favorite Will Smith movie about aliens and, and, uh, and, and, and independence that way. Um, but hopefully you have some plans for this week as we celebrate that wonderful day that comes once a year where we get to enjoy the country in which we live. Think often about the Declaration of Independence, that great document that kind of kicked it all off on July 4th, 1776, and those incredible words penned so long ago, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think if we understand those words in the right way, they are a great foundation on which to build a nation, certainly understanding that rights come from our Creator is important. Now, if the house that we live in today, this nation, seems a little shaky, perhaps it's because we've abandoned that fundamental truth a little bit, but we'll talk about that a little bit more today. Most of you are probably familiar with, at some level, the American War of Independence. You probably learned about it in grade school you probably remember some of the famous battles of that war, the, the Battle of Bunker Hill, where the Americans around Boston defeated the British uh, coming up the hill and, and didn't shoot until they could see the whites of their eyes, maybe the, the Battle of, of Saratoga or the Battle of Yorktown that kind of brought the whole war to an end. You probably know some of the main characters of that conflict you're George Washington, you're Alexander Hamilton. Now, most of you probably aren't quite as familiar with the conflict that happened more recently, but is that almost just as important, conflict that I like to call the Biff Wars. Um, it is a conflict that happened here in northern Arkansas in our country earlier this year, uh, around late May, early June. And to kind of understand this conflict, what you have to understand is that there's a group of men in this church that have, for the past several years have been taking a trip up to northern Arkansas, a canoe trip, a father-son or a father-daughter canoe trip. And as we go on this trip, we, we travel, we carpool up to northern Arkansas to, to canoe down the Buffalo River, Okay. And as we're doing this, we, it's a five-day canoe trip, about, about 40 miles of paddling down the Buffalo River. And as we do this, we have to bring everything with us, all of our food, all of our gear. It's five days on the river. It's primitive camping, which means that one of the things that we have to do on this trip is build a biff. Now, does anybody know what a biff is? Okay. If you don't know what a biff is, it's a bathroom in the forest floor. Okay? The bathroom in the forest floor. One of the most important elements of this trip is building the biff. Because when nature calls, you got to go in nature, right? 
And so the, the Biff Wars took place this year because there were two teams, there were two competing sides on this trip. There was one side that I'll call side al natural. They, they wanted it natural. They wanted to build the Biff with the natural elements. It was sticks and stones, and that's it. And then there was a group of us who were more like camping chic, you know. We, we, we wanted our, our comforts, our modern comforts. And so one of the guys on the trip brought his own little outdoor toilet seat and created a little platform on which it could rest. And it's important. I'll show you an example of, of two different competing versions of this Biff, right? There you go. There's Team All Natural, you know. They've got their throne of thorns because that's exactly what it felt like like you were sitting on thorns, and then you've got team, you know, camping chic over here with your portable seat and your little skis that you'd put the, uh, you'd put the, the seat on, right? You'd put the seat on. Now, why this is important, why this is important for today, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know that uh, the, the organizer of the trip, Jordan Beakley, he is like the George Washington of Biff's. All right, he made, he, he insisted, he, his side won. Almost every single place we stopped, we had a natural bib. Now, this isn't one of his creations. I'm going I'm to admit, this was probably the worst one we had to deal with while we were there. Um, it hurt. I mean, it, it was not a good bib to sit in. But Jordan, I mean, Jordan's a home builder for his day job. And I'm trying to convince him to start his own business where he installs his natural bibs into his homes because they are that good. They, he, he built these things out of sticks, and they were the most comfortable things you could possibly sit in. He's like the George Washington of Biff makers. I, you know, he, he's, he's there fighting a good fight for Biffs. But the reason why this is important for us today is because, as you can tell, the places where we stopped were usually either some kind of rocky ground or, or some sandy ground. And if you didn't have a good foundation on which to place your Biff, you were in trouble. You were in trouble. That, that, you didn't have those skis there to put the Biff on, that, that seat would sink right into the sand and pretty soon you would be in deep doo-doo, you know, before you knew it. The importance of a foundation, obviously, for Biff making is clear, right? It's very clear. Well, today, as we get into the Word of God, as we, as we see in, in today's passage, a foundation is always important. A foundation is always important. We're going to take a look at that today. Most of us have houses that we live in and we enjoy those houses, and we know that without the foundation to that house, it's, it's worthless. If you don't have a solid foundation, it doesn't matter how beautiful the house is, that thing is going to come crumbling down. And Jesus points us to that reality today as we look at our passage in Luke chapter 6. Let's read that together. Now, Luke chapter 6 is one of two times that Jesus tells this particular parable, and it's a short parable. We see a, a different time that He tells it in Matthew chapter 7. And in both of these places, in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 7, it's likely that he's telling the same parable to two different groups. 
In Matthew chapter 7, he's telling it after the Sermon on the Mount. He's just delivered the Sermon on the Mount uh, from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, this great sermon where he, he talks about what it looks like to live a righteous life, what righteousness actually looks like. And here in Luke chapter 6, he's, he's delivered it probably about the same time, but to a different group, this time delivering the sermon on the plain. And he covers a lot of the same ground in this sermon that he covered in the Sermon on the Mount. But both sermons are about how to live a righteous life, how to live a righteous life. And at the conclusion of those sermons, he says this in, chapter, in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I want to stop there for a second and point out the use, the double use of the word Lord. You see, to the Hebrews, if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. You said it over and over again. You see this a lot in the way the, the Hebrew language presents itself as it often repeats itself over and over again. You see it here. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, people come to me and they say, Lord, Lord, like they know me like they're familiar with me. They, are, they seem like they're serious. They're emphasizing the fact that they are calling me their Lord, but then they don't do what I tell them. Why? Why? He's pointing out that there are people who say one thing, but who do another. Their actions speak louder than their words. And then he goes on and says, this is what that's like. In verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke around the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus gives this parable, and as Pastor Seth said several weeks ago, and as he's been emphasizing week in after week out, Parables have both the ability to reveal the truth in very profound ways to those who are ready to hear it, and they also have the ability to conceal it from those who are not, who don't want to hear the truth. And so we, as people who want to know the truth, want to understand this parable well. We want to be the ones who build our house on that rock. And in order to do that, we need to know what is this rock and how do we build our foundation upon it. I think to understand that, we can look to Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 16, this is several months, weeks after Jesus has delivered this parable. 
This comes after the Sermon on the Mount where he, where he delivered this parable on the Sermon on the Mount. And this time he is in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and we see in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18, this exchange happened between Jesus and his disciples. We read this, now when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He takes a poll. Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So when Jesus asks his disciples, who, does, who do the crowd say that he is? They answer with some of the answers that they have received, what they have heard people say. And then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, you have to love Simon Peter, the most outspoken, the most confident, sometimes to a fault of the disciples, speaks out and says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, throughout church history, at some points in church history, the, the sense of this passage has been to put the emphasis of what Jesus is saying in response to Peter on Peter himself. And that makes some level of sense because here we get the, the origin of Peter's name, so to speak. Simon Peter, we get the origin of why he's known to us as Peter, Jesus calls him and says, you are Peter. The word Petros there is a, is a word that is strikingly, is a name that is striking, strikingly similar to the Greek word for rock. And so Jesus is clearly making some correlation here between Peter and his new name and what he says next. He says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And the question we have to ask there, though, is what is that rock? What is the rock that stands as the foundation of the church? That rock that Jesus is comparing Peter to is not Peter himself in his person. It is the confession that Peter has just made. The truth that the Father has revealed to Peter, not that he's figured out on his own, not that he's to come to in his own cleverness, in his own wisdom, but that has been revealed to him by the Father, that's what Jesus says. That rock is the confession that Peter makes about Christ himself, that he is the Son of the living God, the Christ. That's the rock. And it's that same rock that Jesus mentions here that he's referring to in both Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 6. 
And so if we're going to know how to build our foundation on that rock, we have to know what that rock is. What does it mean to be the Christ? That word Christos means anointed one. What does it mean to be the anointed one of God? What does it mean to be the Son of God? In Luke chapter 6, when Jesus is giving his parable, he says, the man dug deep. We need to dig deep to understand what these terms mean. Because here's your first point. It's the knowledge of Christ that is the foundation. The knowledge of Christ is the foundation. It is the rock upon which anyone can build, must build. A godly life. So let's unpack that for a minute. This is so important. Let's unpack what that means for just a little bit. And I think the best place to see this in Scripture is what the Apostle Paul does in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, we get a great description of what it means to see Jesus as the rock. And I want to go there for a minute to try to unpack for a little bit, to dig just, just probably below the surface. Because that's all we're going to have time for today is to just dig a little bit deeper. But I'd like to look at Colossians chapter 1 and dig as deep as we can in what it means to know Christ, to know Jesus as the rock. If you're looking at Colossians chapter 1, and you're looking in a, in a most modern translations of the Bible, this section of verses, verses 15 through 20, probably has a heading over it, a heading that says the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. That's what this section is all about. Let's look at it together in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. See, the first thing we need to know is the preeminence of Jesus' revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to know the preeminence of His revelation, that He is the one who reveals to us what God is like, that to see Christ is to see God Himself. We need to know the preeminence of His revelation. We need to know the preeminence of His status. Paul Paul says this next, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that word firstborn there, it's, it, you can confuse it really quickly with the first made or the first to come into being. That's not what's, in, what's in, the idea here. The idea of the firstborn, as Paul uses it, is the idea of the most important one. He is the most important thing in all of creation. And we get to see a little bit of that here in the next passages where he's going to talk about how Jesus himself created all things. If you go to John chapter 1, John even makes it more clear. He says, all things that have been made have been made by him. So if it has been made, if it is a created thing, it has been made by him. Jesus himself is not a created thing. He is, though, preeminent in all of creation. He is the most important thing in all of creation. We must know the preeminence of His power. The next passage here in, in verse 16, it says this, For by Him all things were created. 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. We must know that He is the one who has created everything, every person here, this building, this nation, this planet, the stars in the heavens, the black holes in distant galaxies, the galaxies themselves, or down to the smallest aspects of creation, the atom, the nucleus of the atom, the subatomic particles, the pieces of this world that no one has discovered yet. He's made that in specific detail. He's made all of it. And if that's true, since that's true, we must know the preeminence of His knowledge. He knows it all. He created it all out of nothing. It is what it is because He made it that way. And so He knows it. And we have to know the preeminence of His knowledge. And if that's true, we have to know the preeminence of His meaning. He says in verse 17, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And what Paul is saying is here is that the only reason anything in this world makes sense, the only reason why it has any meaning at all, what holds it together, what gives it sensibility, which, which allows us to understand it at all, is because of who Christ is. He is meaning. He makes it all meaningful. And we have to know the preeminence of His meaning. Because of that, we should know the preeminence of His leadership, of His kingship. He says in verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church. How incredible is that to know that the one who really leads this church isn't Pastor Seth, it's not the elder board, it's not any group of men who are fallible and who make mistakes, who do things that are unwise, but that the leadership of this church is in the one who created the whole world, whose wisdom is so profound that he never makes mistakes. He never makes mistakes. So we must know the preeminence of His wisdom and of His providence that He has arranged the world in such a way that He's maximizing His glory so that we see Him more clearly, that there are no mistakes, that His providence rules everything in the world. That's our leader. We must know the preeminence of the hope that is within Him. He says this in verse 18, He says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, this idea of firstborn is not the first. Jesus Himself raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised Lazarus. Jesus wasn't the first to come back from the dead, but He is the most important. Jairus' daughter died again. Lazarus died again. And the only reason why any of us have a hope for a resurrection that goes on forever and ever is because Christ has done it. His resurrection is the most important one. It is the basis for our hope. 
And that's why Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent because he is our hope. Verse 19, we have to know the preeminence of his perfection because what Paul says is this, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was perfect, completely filled by God himself. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He didn't have for one moment a bad attitude. He never grew tired of doing his Father's will. He was perfect. We have to know the preeminence of his justice. Paul says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven. Jesus will reconcile all things perfectly. He will settle all accounts. There will be no injustice in this world. He will judge perfectly every single case. In the end, and that would be a terrifying thought were it not for this last part, making peace by the blood of His cross. Because we have to know the preeminence of the peace in Christ, of Christ's peace. That we don't have to tremble in fear about the justice of God anymore because Christ has paid those penalties. He has reconciled the sins of man through His his life, His death, his burial, and his resurrection. He has paid for it. And so even though through him all things, justice is done, he has taken our sin and the punishment we deserved and bought peace for us. We are just scratching the surface as I talk about all of those things. I have just taken the first shovelful and thrown it to the side because this is something that goes so far and so deep. And what Jesus is calling us to do is He's telling us to go deep, to dig deep, to know Him. When I was young, I remember eight years old, we lived in Biloxi, Mississippi, and my dad was outside doing yard work, and he was um, trimming branches or, or taking care of the garden or, or whatever it was that he was out there doing, and I remember he handed me a hose, and there I was as an eight-year-old, been handed a hose, and I was playing in the water, and I think I found, I think what it was, is I think I found an ant pile. I think I thought, you know what would be fun, it'd be to kind of put the hose in the ant pile, kind of see the ants kind of all kind of bubble up to the top. And so that's probably what I did. I took the hose and I put it in the ant pile and started feeding it down the hole that had been created. I probably did that for about five, six, seven minutes and then kind of the water started coming up and there were no more ants and so I tried to get the hose out. And I started pulling on the hose, and it wouldn't come out. And so I turned off the water, and I kept at it, and my dad saw me over there, and he was like, what are you doing? What did you do? 
He walked over and he looked at what I had done and the hose was in the ground and he got down and he started yanking on this hose and he couldn't get it out. And about two hours later, with my dad in a hole up to about here, (laughs) finally he had dug down deep enough to pull that hose the remaining two or three feet that it was in the ground. That's how deep it went. It went about 10 feet into the ground. I had no idea how deep that hole went. Ladies and gentlemen, we have no idea how deep we can dig into the knowledge of Christ. And we're called to go deep. And I'll guarantee you, you can dig your entire life. And it won't be deep enough. But there will come a day when all of us will see him as he is. And then we'll know. Then we'll know. When we finally see him. It's the knowledge of Christ that matters. And we have to go deep. Jesus says this to his disciples in the, in the Gospel of John. He's in the upper room with them. He's giving them comfort. He's trying to give them some peace because he is about to go to the cross, and he knows they're going to be confused. He knows they're going to be afraid, and he gives them these words in the upper room. He says, let not your hearts be troubled in chapter 1 of 14. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, take you my, to myself, that where I am, you also may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, one of his Disciples says to him, doubting Thomas, he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds to Thomas and he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And have seen him. And Philip, another one of his disciples, pipes and says, Lord, show us the Father. You said we've seen him. Show him to us. Where do we see him? And he says, it's enough for us if you just show him to us. And Jesus responds to Philip and says, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Jesus, as he talks to his disciples, as he explains to his disciples, says, if you know me, if you know who I am, you will do the works that I 
do. The knowledge of Christ is the rock. The knowledge of who He is is the foundation. And your second point here today is this, faithfulness and perseverance are proof of a solid foundation. They're proof of a solid foundation. We read in verse 47 of Luke chapter 6 this, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And this is what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. His life is built upon a knowledge of who Christ is. And this is what happens when your life is built on the knowledge of who Christ is. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against the house, and it, that house, and could not shake it because it had been built well. See, those whose foundation is in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who know who He is, they cannot be shaken. They know Christ. They know what to do. They know to serve Him. They know to do what He says to do. Verse 49 shows the opposite. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. At the beginning of this series, Pastor Seth started with the parable of the sower. Started with the parable of the sower. And you recall in that parable, Jesus talks about the three different kinds of soil. And one of those kinds of soil was the soil that had the rocky soil, where the, the seed was scattered on that soil, and the roots could not go deep. They couldn't go deep. And because they couldn't go deep, when the weeds came, they choked out the life in those, in those seeds. Here's, here's your third point. At the end of the day, faithfulness is a matter of a changed heart. We live in a world of kind of what I like to call accessory Christianity. Accessory Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, most of the time in the way the gospel is presented, it must, in many cases, be sold to people. Be sold to them as an accessory to their life, something that will make their lives better, something that they should try out and see how it fits. There's the best friend Christianity, or Jesus is your best friend. He's someone who you can have a relationship with, a good relationship with. Better than all your other friendship relationships, you can just have a relationship with Him, right? Which is true in a certain way, but it shouldn't have to be sold to us like that, right? Maybe some of you in the early or mid to late 90s bought into the boyfriend Jesus, right? The one who was supposed to be your the one you were dating instead of 
boys or, or the, the, the relation, that kind of relationship Jesus or the coach Jesus, the one who's there to give you good advice, to give you things that can make your life better if you just listen to him. The way Jesus is sold in this way is that he's, he's, he's sold in a way that's like, well, Jesus should have a place in your heart, right? He should have a place there. You should accept him into your heart, bring him in with all of the other stuff you have going on, and see how that works out. Maybe even he should have a special place in your heart. I think most of us can recognize this type of Christianity. It's the type of Christianity where, where the church, where the things of God are put there alongside NFL on Sunday. They're put there alongside yoga and, and working out. They're put there alongside your, your video games, your other hobbies, your comforts in life, the other things that you want to accomplish. And when those things conflict with the Jesus things, with the church things, well, we have a decision to make about which one we're going to put a priority on. And oftentimes, the priority gets put on our things over the church things, right? Jesus has a place in our heart, but He can be shoved out when He doesn't fit. Is it any wonder that this is the type of Christianity that we frequently see deconstructed in our world today. The kind of Christ I'm talking about here today does not deserve a place in your heart. He deserves your heart. He is Lord over it, not in there alongside other things. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, he, right before He's given this parable, He has told the crowd this, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruits. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, in these verses that come just before the parable we just heard, Jesus is teaching this. Trees, as in this parable, are people. The fruit is their works. And what Jesus is saying is that what is in the heart of a person determines what fruit that person produces. Now, there are three options here. Many of us may know people who don't have Christ in their heart at all. They reject Christ. They don't want anything to do with Christianity. There are also people that we know, we may even be among them, who have a false Christ who is somewhere in their hearts amongst all the other things that they have in there, a Christ they have made up that's convenient to them, that tells them what they want to hear all of the time, that is their biggest cheerleader, that is something they can take or leave as they see fit, which is just another form of idolatry. 
But if you have the true Christ in your heart, then He is the Lord of that heart. He rules your heart. And you will know whether that's the Christ in your heart by the works that you do, by how you think, by what you say, by how you live your life. And in order for that to be the Christ that is in your heart, you have to know the preeminence of Christ. Dig deep. Fourth point is this. Some may object to this because it is, seems limiting to have a Lord over you. But here's the reality. The truth sets us free. Christ sets us free to do what is good. Christ sets us free. The Lordship of Christ is freedom. Now, as we think about that on this 4th of July weekend, as we think about what freedom really is, what does freedom mean, we tend to think about that in our culture as something that allows us to do whatever it is we want, to do whatever it is we would like to do. We like to think of it as a lack of restraints, options. But that's not the biblical definition. That's not the definition the Bible gives. The, Bible get def- the biblical definition is given to us in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus is talking to the crowd, and Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in Him, so these are the people who were following, who were amongst the crowds, and who had believed who Jesus was and had believed in Him, and He says to them, if you abide in My Word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want you to notice that. What does he say? If you listen to my words, and if you do what I say, if you are my disciples, think about that term, disciples, if you are disciplined by me, if you come into conformity with what I tell you to do, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so here Jesus ties freedom to truth. Being free is not about doing whatever you want. Being free is not about having a complete lack of restraints. Freedom is about being bound to what's true against all other things, against all other things, the truth of who Christ is and the truth of service to Him. That is freedom. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then he says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become 
slaves to righteousness. Freedom, in biblical terms, is freedom from sin and death, freedom from the lie. Anyone who lives their life according to a lie is not free. It doesn't matter if they do what they want. What they want is the lie. What they want will lead to death. And so to be free means to know the truth, to know what is good, and to be able to do it, to be able to desire it. Paul only gives us two options. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ. And the slavery to Christ, the service to Christ is freedom. That's the definition. We are set free from the lies of this world and set free to the truth. So here's your takeaway today. Service to Christ is freedom. Service to Christ is freedom. At the beginning of this message, I talked about those words in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that is a true statement, ladies and gentlemen, so long as we understand that Christ is life. That Christ is liberty, that Christ is our joy. There is no joy, there is no happiness found outside of Him, that we have been given the right by God, in fact, the obligation by God to seek Christ, and that is freedom. Let's pray.